This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It with Tyler and Vanessa this evening. Thanks for joining us. Um, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah. yeah. Very relaxing Wednesday night so far. So. Excellent. And got um, some cool stuff coming up on the show, I'm sure. We certainly do. We'll be speaking to Festival Director of Melbourne Webfest, Stana Ellingston, and uh, he'll be telling us what's up for the festival this year. We'll also be chatting to Nick Hodges about Spot, which is a news solution, like a news distribution solution involving the blockchain for people who love that. So Mm. stick around if you want to hear about what that entails. But in news this week, we've seen a bit on the blockchain as well with Bitcoin. What's going on there, Uh, Tyler? Bitcoin, uh, the uh, buzzword attached to blockchain. Uh, So since the beginning of the year, Bitcoin has gone down 50%. So uh, people worried about the Bitcoin bubble bursting um, are probably more worried about it dying with a whimper nowadays. Um, Of the top 50 cryptocurrencies, only five of them have actually raised in value since December 31st, 2017, uh, with Bitcoin down 50%, Ripple down 75%, and BitConnect down 99.87%. Do you mind if I ask if you've dabbled in any of these just for a bit of fun? Um, I got very, very close back in 2012. Right. I had my wallet set up. I was uh, had my computers ready for mining and everything. Mm. And then I decided, all right, maybe maybe I'll leave it. Immediately regretted it. Um, I literally you. put in $5. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years back. How'd and, that go? Well, it's it's fine. I mean, it was looking fine in December and <laughs> now it's not that fine. I think it might have been up around the $200, $250 mark in December. That's so a pretty be, good increase. It'll be half that now. I did plan <laughs> to take it out, but the experiment is actually more fun. Yeah, to, just to see where it goes. Yeah, we're just writing it out. It'd, it'd be fun to have it in a decade's time and just if the protocol still existed mm-hmm. then. I actually uh, was watching an episode of The Good Wife the other day from back in 2012 um, and they did a case with uh, uh, the mysterious creator of Bitcoin coin and uh, oh, it was back Satoshi then Nakamoto. yeah exactly still a mystery back then of course amazing yeah and uh, the value of Bitcoin back then was only two dollars per coin so uh, yeah. it's it's interesting to see how it's changed in the last six years or so yeah when we weren't talking about micro parts of a coin <laughs> <laughs> amazing yes uh, Look, another uh, thing that's going on at the moment which is Always, um, I always love the news about this, is that something's happening with the Mars rover. So the Mars rover has been a really indestructible piece of tech that they managed to land on Mars and it's roamed around and people feel quite attached to it, I think, because, you know, it's sending things back and it's alone on this planet and people have created all these memes mm. about it having a life on <laughs> Mars. But it has been knocked out by a gigantic dust storm, um, which is currently enveloping the planet and it's blotting out the sun. And they know this because of all the sensors and the cameras and things on Mm. the rover. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see if it can indeed recover and they can re-contact the the rover Mm -hmm. or if, you know... This might be it. Yeah, it's. Uh, I find that really interesting seeing as when they first launched it up, they were only planning for it to be active for 90 days and it's been 15 years. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like he's, he's had a good track record and he might bounce back. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we're sending out good vibes to the Mars rover, I guess. Yeah, excellent. So last week they are 
annual E3 gaming conference was on with all the uh, big publishers presenting the newest games and upcoming things for the following year. Um, and it seems like the end of the loot box era is in sight. For those not familiar, loot boxes are a method of um, uh, selling skins and items in games randomly so you would buy a loot box and uh, it would automatically generate items for you in game um, and it got a lot of got a lot of flack around the world for being a form of gambling and giving giving gamers a uh, a leg up um, by paying to win I suppose yeah it's yeah. a really interesting um, ethical discussion mm -hmm. and and you know I love that people are talking about what's problematic about mm things in game design? Definitely. I know um, there's a couple of European countries like uh, Finland and Denmark that were actually considering banning uh, the games with loot boxes because it was a form of gambling. Um, and for something yeah. that so many kids are into, I think it's mm. really valuable to have that discussion. Definitely, yeah. Like there are some uh, games that have uh, used it uh, to success and others that have been um, very much uh, disagreed with. Mm. Um, but nowadays, uh, EA announced a game called Anthem, um, which has uh, no loot boxes, but um, to still have some income from the game for an online game, they allow people to buy an in-game form of currency, um, which they can use to individually purchase the things that they want and none of them being actually game-breaking or giving other players a leg up. Um, yeah, yeah, that's um, it's it's such an interesting thing. I wonder how universally the games companies are taking on board this mm. this uh, this trend and this feedback from the community that there are some boundaries. Yes, de this. definitely. It's um so yeah, get get on there. Look at what um, games were announced at E three. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. Uh, and oh well, in related yeah. games news, uh, Apple uh, announced their design award winners as part of their their annual conference, their dev, dev conference. Um, but I thought I wanted to call out that they included an Aussie game slash comic called Ooh. Florence. It's an absolutely beautiful looking um, piece of work. It's an interactive graphic novel, and it's from Monument Valley designer Ken Wong. Um, with his company Mountains Craft Game Studio. So lots of you might know Monument Valley. It was hugely successful game for iOS platforms. Uh, I believe it did extend to Android at some point. And you would often see it as part of the demo suite if you went to buy an iOS device. You'd often see it in the iPad department. Mm. They'd, they'd have that game up front because it was just so stunning looking. So Florence is a new thing from the same designer, Ken Wong. And... It's a hybrid like game comic about Florence, who's the titular character, and mm -hmm. her love interest, Krish, and it reflects on the nature of love and relationships, which is just such a sweet thing. Mm. It's got an original score and hand-drawn style graphics, so it just looks like such a labour of love and really worth calling out excellent work coming out of the Australian game community. You've gotten me hyped yeah. just from that little... Uh, well, <laughs> go check it out, and, and yeah. you can also explore all the other Apple design winners at... Um, you know, there's a TechCrunch article about it that you can find pretty easily, and there's stuff from around the world. Mm. It's great to get inspired by all these different sorts of design, but if you go there, you will see some screenshots from Florence, and it's stunning. Definitely. Um, it's a good little segue into our first interview, isn't it? Yeah. 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 In a moment, we'll be spe speaking to Melbourne Webfest director, Steinar Ellingson, about web series. Uh, so if you're into things like the catering show and all other manner mm. of content that uh, comes out via web series, then 
This will be the place to hear more. Excellent. 2018 will mark the sixth instalment of the festival. It's running from the 28th of June to the 1st of July and it will honour innovative creators and it'll be screening 85 of the best web series from 16 different countries. Welcome, Steiner. Hello. Hey, great to have you speaking with us again. It's been a full year or so since we've um, spoken about your festival and I'm sure you've been beavering away trying to get this one together. We have, yes, absolutely. um, It becomes surreal after we've had this chat, you know. Yes, for (laughs) us too. So we wanted to find out, are you seeing a lot of growth in uh, the digital series uh, production and in the Australian market particularly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been, I think over the last two or three years, there's been uh, extreme uh, growth, so to speak. But it's a really exciting space now. It's uh, Well, it's always been that for us, obviously, but it's uh, it's clear that the industry is starting to take this uh, this space a lot more seriously, and, and, uh, and that's really exciting. And, and what we're seeing now is more... Um, the co-productions are starting to happen between different countries and mm. and uh, with that comes greater ambition and, and bigger budgets as well. So that's, uh, that's really exciting what's happening. Definitely. Um, so uh, can you tell us just uh, straight off the bat, what are some of the shows on the bill that really excite you? Oh, well, there's 85 of them, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and uh, I can say this now because I don't have anything to do with the awards uh, jury mm-hmm. or anything, but there's so many, so many amazing shows um, up and so many of them are Australian, which is great. We really are, as a, as a country, in terms of what's being produced, Australia is, is really one of the global leaders in this space, which makes it all extra exciting for us. So, mm. So there's, yeah, there's lots of stuff happening. There's a, like I said, there's a few co-productions happening now um, between Australia and, and France in particular. So there's uh, there's some really exciting stuff coming out of there um, that's screening in the festival. So um, uh, that's some of the highlights that we have to look forward to. So, so Steiner, what do you think is motivating some of those co-productions? What what are the benefits for for producers doing that? Well, for producers, obviously, it means that you can get money from from two different countries. (laughs) (laughs) It's pure honesty. I like that. (laughs) Well, and and you get with that comes exposure in in multiple countries as well. So there's a there's a couple of platforms overseas, European ones. There's one called Black Pills that originated in France that that has got a lot of uptake of these um, Australian French co-productions. And a, and a production house that's called Rogsaline, uh, sorry, Rogsaline, that's also putting uh, significant money uh, into this uh, production. So um, they get distribution worldwide. Black Pills is connected up with Vice in the US, stuff like that, to co, uh, co uh, present some, some things. And, and uh, there's much greater visibility for this sort of stuff now than, than what it was maybe only two or three years ago. Yeah, it's it's interesting because um, I I always um, back when web series first started becoming a thing, it, one of the biggest advantages that I saw was the the lower lower budget needed to produce um, and the sort of the more creative freedom. Um, and obviously now the budgets yeah. are increasing and we're getting uh, more production houses involved. Um, so what what would you say that nowadays is probably the the thing that differentiates web series from more traditional television or film? 
Um, look, I think all the things that you said still really applies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the projects that I was talking about are kind of, I guess, the lightning rod of, the, of this uh, niche of the industry at the moment. But in terms of our festival program, you know, probably at least 60% of it is still produced for less than $100,000 mm. for a whole season. So, um, and in addition to that, a lot of it was also produced for less than 50 and less than 20 even. So, um, so in a sense, I suppose this area of the screen production industry is... We're starting to see that it's becoming sort of two-tiered in a way. There's the there's the very independent, you know, go out and do it with your mates and mm. and a, and a, and, a, and passion and a good story. But yes, but you're also seeing that um, you know broadcasters are coming on board, studios, production houses, who obviously put more resources uh, into these sort of productions with uh, with different set of ambitions. But having said that, I think web series as a as a as a niche and as a as a particular area of screen production, still very much um, holds true that um, independent spirit in the sense that it's it certainly becomes it has become something that you need to do to establish yourself as a filmmaker. I think is to produce uh, produce web series. Funding strategies and in, initiatives have changed, and sort of in Australia at least, um, it's really the sort of it's the it's the first thing that you do to kind of show that you can produce um, serialized stuff, and mm. then also an investment space. I think at the moment, which is, which is exciting. Well, it's really interesting that you speak about it in terms of part of a career path for um, screen content makers, uh, because not only do you you know curate and, and screen a whole lot of things but you also run a series of industry panels and networking events could you tell us about some of those opportunities at webfest this year yeah so you know we take professional development very uh very seriously so we do a whole day of, of master classes and stuff like that on the friday which is friday next week um we have uh, howard fine acting studio involved in a workshop uh, on acting for directors uh, we have Warwick uh, Holt, who's a uh, very, uh, very seasoned screenwriter, doing a screenwriting workshop. Um, he ro actually wrote, he writes for the project. That's it. Ah. He wrote a web series uh, uh, called uh, called Bruce that uh, did the rounds on the festival circuit last year that ended up being one of the most awarded web series in the world. Uh, yes, that got really hyped. That's great. Yeah, so he's doing a screenwriting workshop. We have a, um, uh, we, we also have a fellow from the US called uh, John Cabrera who's coming back. He's been here a couple of years ago. He's doing uh, some more professional development for us. He's got a long background as a, a creator, director, uh, produced the web series for Warner Brothers Studios uh, a few years ago called H Plus, which was the most expensive web series made today <laughs> at, the, at the time. Um, had a budget of about three and a half million dollars and it was uh, co-created with uh, Brian Singer, the X-Men director. Excellent. Um, um, that's <laughs> pretty yeah, high that's, profile. That's, that's, that's excellent as well. There's more stuff happening, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's some of the stuff that, we've, uh, that we're offering uh, on that uh, particular day. And we also got a lighting workshop for the techies with... Uh, Panels on diversity. We have a panel specifically about the blockbuster 
web series that's uh, starting to uh, become a bit of a thing. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, multiple panels, as well as a keynote from uh, Julie Kalsach, who's the creator of, of probably one of Australia's most successful web series to date, starting from now. <laughs> Is there even enough time um, in the day for all that? That's, <laughs> that's, that's well, it. Goes, we have four days. So, uh, uh, yeah. so that. We also have a pitching competition, which is really exciting. Mm. But, I was, uh, yeah, I was just about to but, ask about that with ABC iView, right? Yes, yes. So it's the third time. Um, third time we're doing that now. And uh, if you missed out on the shortlist, you can still get into it uh, as we are uh, accepting wildcard entries from, uh, from festival attendees. So you might still get a chance to pitch if you do attend the festival and, and put your ideas forward. Mm. Um, the details of that will be revealed to the festival attendees on opening night. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, the winning pitch uh, creator gets uh, $5,000 towards script development. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that $5,000 is earmarked the trip to France, actually, huh? uh, in, in October to uh, take part in a writing residency there with... Uh, with some uh, American script editors and and, uh, and and screenwriters over there for a week, and then and then they come back uh, with hopefully a more developed script to uh, come back to the ABC and uh, and go, and go into development for a original series for Idea. It sounds like you're setting up these um, these competition winners also to have some great networks to to use in France and and to do some of those co-productions perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, nothing would bring us more joy than if something like that happened. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, ABC has been doing some co-productions in that space uh, before, so, so why not? So um, diversity is something that we're seeing screen content makers putting a lot more effort into. How are web series yeah. tracking, uh, I guess, on screen and in production, but also, you know, off screen? Well, you know what, like probably the best answer to that is just to have a look on our website. Um, if you have a look, we have nearly every uh, award category has got multiple nominations from different genders, from different cultural backgrounds, from different countries, from different corners of the world. Um, all of our panels are you know, featuring uh, creators, again, from from different backgrounds and, and walks of life. And, and I think this is probably one of the real strengths of this space is because, you know, it's been growing up so <laughs> in a sort of, uh, you know, it's been total anarchy. So uh, <laughs> great. Anarchy is good for diversity. You know? We like a little bit of anarchy here, mm. I've got to say. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, although it, things are becoming more formalised, I think it has has really brought out a lot more diverse players and more diverse stories as well. And, and I think, uh, you know, looking at Australia in particular, I think we're definitely seeing, um, in terms of our Australian submissions, we're starting to see the, the fruits of, of, uh, of, the, of the Gender Matters program that they ran there uh, yeah. as well. And mm -hmm. So we've got a lot more um, uh, female filmmakers this year, which is great, uh, and and with that, I think there's there's uh, there's richer stories being told as well, mm. um, which is extremely extremely exciting. But I do think that um, you know diversity doesn't have to be 
that hard. Yeah, <laughs> really. yeah. of course. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, there's just so uh, many opportunities yeah. when the, the barriers to entry are a little bit lower, you know, that really helps. So I think this kind of, uh, you know, bootstrappy sort of uh, mm. industry is, has been a really exciting time for screen content. It is, mm. absolutely. It's, um, you know... I think the word proliferation is, is right in terms of <laughs> <laughs> what's being made and what's coming out and just the sheer volume of, of stuff that is uh, that is coming out as well. But, uh, but the quality and the diversity uh, as well is... is uh, is uh, is growing exponentially, and it's a, it's a really exciting space to uh, to be watching. So, Stana, we wouldn't want you to think that we hadn't done our homework, but for the benefit <laughs> of our audience, do you think you could uh, describe a few of the categories for the awards this year and give people an idea of the the range of content that's in in play? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well. We have different genre categories, as you'd expect. We have uh, technical awards and and uh, and um, and performance-based awards. We have uh, awards for what we call spotlight series, so that's acknowledging the the, the very independent stuff that's coming out still. Um, so that to be eligible for that, your uh, your series had to be made for less than fifty thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have student categories. We have crowd favorite awards. We have uh, we also have a diversity award. Um, there's a pitching award, and uh, and we have eight what we call Ruby tickets, which will send one of the Australian entries to one of our international partner festivals. Oh, brilliant! Um, and uh, last but not least, we have a grand jury award that's uh, that's got a. Um, cash price attached, attached to it. So finally... before awards. Well, finally we should ask you, who should be coming along to this festival? Because I feel like there are a few audiences. I feel like there are a few audiences who would get a lot out of this festival. Yeah? Yeah, so who, so who do you think, you know, when you're talking to people about it, who do you think should come along? How do you, how do you pitch to them? Oh, depends on who they are, I yeah. suppose. But um, <laughs> it obviously appeals to to filmmakers. That's a that's a no brainer. Um, and uh, we're seeing more and more people coming in now from from sort of later in their careers as well. It's not just the space for the for the upstart, mm. which is, which is great. Um, we're getting uh, some other sort of communications industry people coming to see what's happening in this space, trying to connect up with creators. And, um, you know, just people who love film and TV. That's uh, me. That's the well. reason I head along. <laughs> you get to see such a diverse set of things and they tend to be quite refreshing, whereas I feel that, you know, in more formal channels, maybe the offerings are a bit more predictable. Mm. Uh, so that's what I like yeah. about this, a bit of an alternative film <laughs> festival for me. Yeah, absolutely it is. I mean, uh, uh, you know, we've, <laughs> we've got everything from... Uh, from uh, you know romance dramas to romantic comedies to uh, families driving around in in the buses eating people in the Australian outback, so um, to people having sex with robots, it's something for everyone. <laughs> this is absolutely what we need for our show. This is amazing. All right, Stana, thank you so yeah. much uh, for telling us all about Melbourne Webfest again this year. It's uh, running from the twenty eighth of June to the first of July. We wish you all the best of it and. Um, People can check it out at melbournewebfest.com. Thanks for your time this evening.
Thank you. Thanks again. Good to talk to you. Yeah, great to hear from you. Bye. We are about to hear about Spot. It is a blockchain protocol for digital news that ensures publishers get paid, fake news becomes invisible, and those who help distribute quality news get rewarded. It sounds too good to be true, but we're about to dig a little deeper and find out all about it with co-founder Nick Hodges. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. It's been a couple of years since we've had you on the show and it sounds like you've been very busy. Uh, what was the genesis of Spot? Look, the, the genesis of Spot really came from uh, two places. First was, I, I guess, just the initial interest in sort of blockchains starting. I was sort of interested in blockchains way back in the early Bitcoin days mm. and, and really thinking about how this technology could impact um, media, which is really the, the world that I live in. Uh, and the other, the, the other angle on it was um, one of the other co-founders of Spot, Gotham Mishra, who has a startup called Inkle. And uh, Gotham uh, sort of invited me for a coffee four or five years ago and, and sort of pitched this idea of Inkle to me, which, which is an application which essentially is an aggregation of paywalls. So you, you pay uh, $15 a month and this application will allow you to access news from uh, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, uh, The Economist, Financial Times, so all these great paywalled um, news sources. Mm. And so I was sort of going through my media life thinking about how blockchains could impact media and uh, Gotham was busy building up Inco as a, as a very successful uh, and Melbourne-founded startup. Mm. And we uh, we decided uh, sort of late last year that it might be worth having a crack at bringing those two things together and, and using the relationships and the, the, the power and the audience that we had in Inco with some of the ideas we had for how that can be applied to uh, to the blockchain. So Spot was born. So let's dig a bit further. What was the problem statement that you were really trying to, you know, tease out? What was the problem for news distribution? Well, the key problem for news distribution and the real starting point is simply the fact that when news organisations, when media companies, and in particular newspapers, went from the non-digital world to the digital world, they didn't work out how to get paid uh, from the reader. Mm -hmm. So previously, newspapers have uh, generated revenue through readers and through advertising. Mm -hmm. And when the internet came along, uh, in pretty much every media company, it was seen as this sort of uh, small thing that the nerds in the basement could sort of uh, take <laughs> care of. And no one thought about making money and, and how to charge readers. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it grew and grew and grew. And then before we sort of knew it, everybody turned around and all the readers had moved online but no one had worked out how these um, news media companies could actually get paid for that content. Mm. So uh, advertising is is the, the real single way that drives the majority of news online. Mm -hmm. Some paywalls do exist. And blockchains, really, if you look at what they enable, um, we hope and we expect that they will enable this ability to pay... Uh, very small amounts mm. for individual articles rather than having to subscribe to, to one paywall. We know that mm. consumers don't want to have to subscribe to a paywall for all these different organisations, mm. but they're actually happy to pay for news. 
It's funny because we've been talking about trying to do micropayments for years, but it wasn't until blockchain came along that it actually seemed a little sexier. Micropayments always (laughs) had a bad reputation. That's one way of putting it. uh, Yeah, it definitely adds up all those subscriptions over time. Like I know I'm still getting my bank account and looking at Spotify and Netflix. I'm like, oh, is that a bit too much? Um, So... um, I notice in a lot of your uh, your press stuff, uh, you you talk a lot about fake news and keeping media honest and the idea of high quality content. Could you talk us through like what what you define those those terms as? Like, what what would you consider fake news? Yeah, look, it's a it's a very broad area, mm. the, the fake news piece, and one of the uh, core sort of ideas that we have around. Um, spot and this idea that if people start paying even very small amounts uh, for news articles, it will really help to eradicate fake news. Mm. When we talk about fake news there, we're we're really talking about the stuff that is literally spam news, Mm. this sort of, you know, completely falsified yet quite sensational sort of content that is being pushed out at extremely high volumes. Mm. You won't and believe what they did next. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, this is the this is really the, the, the spam of the web. Mm. And, you know, spam exists and spam still exists because there is no cost to sending email. Mm. It's, it's essentially a zero cost. But if you put even just a tiny cost on sending email, you, you'll wipe spam off the map. Mm. So that also translates to a news perspective as well. Mm. So if people are paying only a few cents for articles, it might not be a huge financial impact to them as they go about their lives. But this ability to generate, you know, thousands and thousands of ridiculous articles, either just to generate sort of ad clicks, which a lot of um, that sort of content exists for, or to spread completely false information like we saw with um, some of the sort of Russian content around the US election, um, that just disappears because suddenly it becomes uneconomical to actually Mm. create and try and distribute that content. Excellent. So this makes me think of a couple of things. One is that... I'm going to forget the other by the time I say this one. (laughs) Uh, I guess one is that uh, it's not going to solve some of the problems that we would define as fake news at the moment. Uh, so that's that's an important distinction to make. Uh, yeah, I've totally forgotten what the other <laughs> one is. Um, <laughs> Tyler? That, well, so, I mean, you are correct there in the, in the sense that it, it's, it's not going to cause the problem that, uh, you know, some people just believe some news outlets mm. uh, are, are completely wrong. It's when not, yeah. And people have strong different perspectives on things and some of them are poorly fact-checked, but it's not going to solve the fact that we have articles discussing those things. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know, there, there is this sort of broader problem, which mm. is tribalism is increasing on the internet. Um, getting people to pay for news is not going to help I with, remember reading the tribalism. An, well, I remember reading an article about the balkanisation of the web mm-hmm. um, pre-2000. Mm. So this this issue was, was foretold years ago and unfortunately has come to be realised even worse than we could ever imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I think that there's something actually more interesting. I remember my other point now, which is that I feel like you're using behavioural economics in a way, you know, you're triggering this this cost of something and therefore the sense that this something needs to have value if people are going to bother to do it and that mm. 
news is a really interesting case because you can't actually try before you buy. It's not like music where you get to hear things for free and then you decide if you want to, you know, pay for it to, to own your own version or what have you. So have you done much in the way of research in teasing out these sort of differences for from the consumer perspective? Yeah, and news, news, is, news is very different to, to, to music in the sense that you don't, you often or you almost never read a news article twice. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, but... Look, we, we, we do know that people are willing to pay uh, for articles. We, we do know that people are willing to pay a small amount, you know, without having to preview an article. And this was um, the strength that we have with, with Inkle sort of being a part of, of Spot mm. is that uh, one of the one of the sort of options for being an uh, Inkle user is you can simply pay 10 cents per article. And we can look at the the how people are using Inkle and, and the success of that and know that, that that actually does work. And there are a few other models around the world. Unfortunately, there's not many, but there are a few other models. So Blendle is the other one that has significant traction as well, where people are paying for news and... To a large degree, they use that as, as a bit of a signal as well. So if you're sharing content from, from Inkle, for example, you, you are signalling that you value and you pay for this news. Mm, definitely. Um, so obviously Spot is a protocol. Um, so it's, it's operating behind the scenes for a lot of people. Um, how, what, how do you see con- consumers accessing Spot? Um, how, how are you rolling it out? Um, yeah, so... Yeah. We very consciously made the decision that Spot is a, a protocol, it's not an application. So anybody can build on top of Spot. And so as we continue to develop the technology, and this is, you know, we, we, this is still very early days. Any sure. blockchain, we're still in sort of the mid-90s of, <laughs> of, of this whole thing. Um, but essentially, you know, Spot is a protocol in the sense that, that you can build applications on top of it and those applications will be able to take payment. Um, we, we have a reward system built in. So if you share content mm-hmm. that lots of other people then go and buy, you get a bit of a cut of, mm-hmm. uh, of all of those sales. So we initially will have a few different applications that run on the protocol. Mm-hmm. So Inkle is a general news application from globally well-known news sources. And we're currently working on a few other ones uh, that, that, that are more um, sort of vertical focused. So, mm. you know, we, we might have a uh, one that's around uh, the renewable, renewable energy market. Um, we might have a Korean news application as well. We, you know, we could just have a tech mm. and a gaming sort of um, There's so uh, much potential well. for integrations too. Like yeah. I'd love to see a co-production sort of situation with something like Issue, with you know, which is like virtual publishing mm. um, house, which is just fantastic. And you get to scroll through things that are virtual magazines. But to monetize that a bit, which I don't think they've done so far, they've just got advertising, which as we're describing, this is really what could disrupt that dynamic. That could be really good. Yeah, and that's a key part of the work that we're doing is not simply just looking at people building applications on the protocol, but but building existing technology into mm. the protocol. So if you think about WordPress, it's you know, responsible for pretty mm. much every news website in the world now is running on, on WordPress. They've, they've pretty much monopolised it. Um, you know, being able to very quickly and easily um, sort of plug a, a, an installation of WordPress into the spot protocol um, is a super powerful thing as well. So mm. we're looking at things like that and, and medium uh, and, and things like issue. 
It's, it's actually quite interesting to see how it could develop um, removing advertising from the equation and sort of even for the more trustworthy news sites, there's still some sort of unknowing advertiser bias sometimes um, to sort of bring the actual monetization back to the consumers and know that uh, they have a direct connection to their audience rather than their fund funders, I suppose. Yeah. 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 News is fraught because it's tied up with issues of, you know, the fourth estate and keeping governments accountable and, and you know, speaking truth to power and all these sort of things uh, being, being a, a balance of power. So when we talk about monetising news, um, it's, it's a time that I start to think about equity of access to news and what that means to shaping society and thinking gosh, I should have studied media studies at university or something to really have this conversation uh, from a well-researched point of view. But uh, it, it makes me think about what happens to a society where some people can afford to pay for news or, or get a certain quality of news and other people who are potentially already more disenfranchised don't have access to that same information um, I'm sure you grappled with these sort of issues when you're thinking about this <laughs> protocol. So I just wondered, you know, where did your thinking lead you on these sort of things? What do you think will happen? Yeah, it's a look. It's a it's a question that we get asked a lot. It's actually a question, you know, pre blockchain that, that mm. often came up in in media companies as well. And there's a couple angles to look at it. One is on an extremely long time horizon, and the fact is that you know traditional media and newspapers and advertising supported media as we know it is is extremely um it's got an extremely short history uh in in terms of the the broader history of how people got information about the world they lived in um so maybe it does just go away uh at the same time um media needs to be paid for However, the the scale that most media and, and sort of that classic fourth estate holding power to account um, element, um, the scale that that, that uh, sort of operates on means that it's not necessarily an expensive thing um, to give people access to. Mm -hmm. So when people often, people sort of say, well, if suddenly, you know, only rich people can afford to get the, the, the real news. Um, this wasn't true in the 60s. Um, you know, everyone was paying 20 cents for their newspaper. Mm -hmm. The system works perfectly well at that sort of scale at very low costs. Mm -hmm. So this, the, the, the sort of common idea that's trotted out that we'll sort of end up in this um, unequal world is a little bit unfounded because it's not based on the actual economics of news that if lots of people pay a little bit, then... Mm it can definitely survive in a very safe and stable state. There's also an inherent um, problem with my premise, which is that we don't already have a two-tier news system now, which mm. we kind of do. If you think about the fact that corporations can afford to pay for things like your Lexus Nexuses and your Thomson Reuters and all your other, you know, business news and economic news and those sort of things, there are two tiers. There is a data that people already see the value in because it's leading to bottom line outcomes. Mm. And then there's the more public news type of data, which is considered non-commercial largely, you know, we'll pay a bit for it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very conscious that I sort of uh, threw you in it there, but I, I thought it was interesting to hear, you know, what you thought about that. Obviously, that would require a Spot to become a runaway success anyway. <laughs> and, and really, you know, what do you see as, as a natural kind of uh, 
phase of, of growth for Spot next? Like, what would you like to see? And is it about expanding territories or like what are your metrics? Is it about, you know, users no matter where they are and is it about involving people who are um, on the media side and how does that happen? Yeah, look, uh, there's a couple sort of key uh, directions and and key metrics that we want to sort of look at. One is obviously the the breadth and the depth of the use of the protocol. Mm -hmm. So how many different sort of applications and use cases can we get on the protocol quickly? Mm -hmm. How many users can we get using the protocol? But one of the key metrics that we really have and something we, we continually come back to is the fact that this doesn't succeed if we just get people who are already in the, the sort of the Bitcoin or Ethereum or crypto ecosystem. Mm. It, it, it doesn't work if yeah. we only get those people. We succeed only if we create a protocol that allows regular people anywhere in the world to, to access news um, in an economically viable and sustainable way. Mm. So... The, the, while the short-term metrics are how many applications and uses can we get, um, the, uh, the the long-term metric is how many people outside of this sort of magical internet money world can <laughs> we uh, can, can we actually get using this to to pay for news and do something that they haven't been able to do before. Look, I think the concept is really fascinating and has great potential to just get rid of some of the guff online and reward some people who are really pouring their heart, hard-earned you know, thoughts and everything into good content. If people want to investigate this more, do go to spotprotocol.co.co and um, investigate it, build things with it. We want to see where this can go. It's great Australian ingenuity. Thanks for your time, Nick Hodges. Thanks for having me. Just a couple of quick events you want to call out. One is on the 28th of June from 4.30 to 6.30. It is the last of CSIRO's Data 61 Sci and Tech in the City events for the financial year. The theme is data-driven innovation. They've got six speakers who've been immersed in creating businesses and products and ecosystems around data and technology in Victoria. So they'll have short talks and a group Q&A and you can find that on Eventbrite. So that's Data 61's Sci and Tech in the City on the 28th of June. Excellent. Um, so Above All Human 2018 is a technology and innovation conference about driving change and solving big challenges. Uh, they bring together all kinds of people for a day of insights and innovation from the world's most pioneering minds. Um, so that's on the 29th of August, uh, organised by Startup Victorious. Um, and you can find out about that at www.aboveallhuman.co. Yeah, it's a really cool event Uh, and this year it includes Irene Coe who's from Cosla Ventures. She's the former global head of UX at Google and she's pretty hot stuff so um, you should definitely keep an ear out for that. Thanks so much for listening tonight if you've been with us. A big thank you to our guests Steiner Ellingson and Nick Hodges and uh, we've been bud into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony. Oh, sorry, with Adam filling in for mm. Anthony Carew this nearly week. Messed that I one know, up. Nearly messed up. Nearly. He just names. said it to us two oh, seconds ago. So bad. Uh, have a good show, Adam. Enjoy. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.